For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Recorded live.
Good morning, Northern Maine. Welcome to the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, Conscience of Maine. Broadcast today on TalkShoe Radio, worldwide, citizen-produced radio. Well, I missed the show last week. My apologies. It only happened once or twice before in the last five years, but it was unavoidable. And by the time I got to the phone, it... Uh, my window of opportunity was gone, and that was that. So here I am, back again. Just had a snow squall come through. Uh, it was uh, 40 degrees and misty rain this morning, cleared off, and uh, there we got a few a few minutes of sleet. Hear it tapping on the windows and snowed to beat the band, like 15, 20 minutes. I mean, it was really snowing hard, heavy wet, wet snow coming down, and and uh, we got a half an inch of snow on the lawn, nothing on the roads, because the roads were 40 degrees an hour earlier. But the state salt truck went right up through, salting in the usual spots where the sun doesn't hit it. I don't believe the uh, road was below freezing. I went down to Harbor Tool, or Harbor Freight, down to Bangor. They call it the Big Boys Toy Store. I stop in there once in a while on the way through, and... and uh, they have they have these uh, electronic remote t- sensing temperature uh, devices, so you can shine it on uh, on the wall in your house and know what the wall is. And you can shine it on a roast roast beef in the oven and know what the temperature is of the surface of the roast beef. And, and if you want to get your your frying pan just right for frying eggs, so you don't eggs don't get all brown and lacy on the edges, but the they still cook well. There's a temperature, and restaurants know what it is. So when your eggs come out from the kitchen in most restaurants, you know they're not all lacy on the edges because the grill was too hot. You can you can measure this. I I've got one. It was 1995. The state to buy these, so you can on the road with a with a state truck, and you can shine it. You know, point it down. There's a red laser. It sends a laser down and shine it on the road and find out exactly what that road temperature is. And if road temperature is 38 degrees, you don't really need to spread salt on that road unless you know that it's going to drop down to 10 or 0 or something. But uh, this is not rocket science today. It came from rocket science, but you've got all kinds of gadgets that are really fun to have. And I've got one of those temperature sensors. And you can, you know, if you want to do it, you can study the temperature of, of the side of a of a can for trash can turkey. It measures the temperature of any surface. And you can point it at the sky. And, uh, and it's real cold. <laughs> so it works. I, I couldn't believe it when we had this first, you know, real, you know, it was heavy snow. Visibility was, was low for just like 10 or 15 minutes, and then it was over. All done. So it's going to be a nice weekend. So I also bought an electric drill. They, uh, we replaced the decking on two snowmobile bridges in the area. 
and the former president of the uh, the Snowmobile and ATV Bridges. The ATV Club is the one that did it. We replaced the the decking, and uh, it's these heavy planks, two and a half inches thick, and they. The stringers underneath were good, but the old planks were worn out and rotten and bad, so we ripped them off and put new planks on. And uh, we got these six-and-a-half, seven-inch logging, uh, log-home uh, screws. And you drove them down through there with a, with a portable electric uh, battery-powered drill. And it sounded them right down through there, all seven inches right down into the into that wood and, and sucked it right down in there. We drove a lot of them. This one bridge was 20 feet long, and the other one was about 15 feet long. And uh, did all of those with this electric drill. And it started going down a little bit, so I had my generator, and we, we fired up the charger to swap batteries and sounded the rest of them down. And I just was so impressed with that drill. So I bought one. They had them on sale. They were $179, and then they were $149, and then they just had a sale down there. $99 for this drill. So I bought it. i got lots of places where I can use it. I had a little battery-powered drill, which is fine for a little hanging up pictures on the wall or something, but you don't want to go find an extension cord. But uh, that, uh, you know, it's, it's an older one. When they were first coming out with, with battery-powered drills, they, uh, they didn't have much life to them. I bought one of their kits. It had a little tiny uh, skill saw, and they had a chainsaw. And it's about an 8 or 10-inch chain on this little tiny chainsaw. And it's, you know, just the thing if you want to cut a limb off, and you don't want to come up there with a bow saw, just pull that thing, you got about two limbs, and you're done. That battery's done. But it was, uh, you know, it was a good novelty, and it it was efficient in its own way, but it wasn't good for any production project. So uh, here we are. Friday the 10th. Uh, they observe Veterans Day today, and tomorrow is actual Veterans Day, and tomorrow the Region 3 school in Lincoln is going to have a free breakfast for veterans in the area. I think they'll have a pretty good pretty good turnout. If you feed them, they will come. I had a, our school in uh, local junior high school serves a whole bunch of towns, and... Uh, Student population is declining as our young people have, have left Maine. The people of childbearing age go someplace else and uh, live and work for 20, 25 years. And then when they're 50 or 55 years old, they come home. And uh, it's like salmon going upstream. They want to be home in Maine. And I encourage that. And these people buy a lot of what they'd like to buy is a is an old farm on 25 acres or more with some fields, some woods, a water supply, either a dug well or a drilled well. They can provide the household water, and, and uh, this is their dream. This is what they want to do, and they, I encourage that. Come home. We need you. 
we wish their kids were here, grew up in Maine. But they every weekend, excuse me, every summer, they would go stay with their grandparents for a few weeks and live in Maine for a few weeks. And they've got a really good feeling about Maine. But they didn't grow up in Maine. They grew up someplace else. Oftentimes they were born in Maine. I go down and visit my son down in Portland, and uh, coming up the road on a Sunday afternoon, you see a U-Haul or a Penske truck going down the road with <clears throat> pulling a a, a bobtail uh, with their with the car with the front wheels off the ground. Behind that is is a pickup truck with a with a uh, you know a cap on the back. And that that vehicle was pulling a trailer. And they're probably talking back and forth between the two vehicles. Because that's mom and dad headed out of the state of Maine. Going someplace where there's a better, better economic opportunity. Well, that's beginning to change. It, it's going to take a while because we had eight years of Angus King and then we had eight years of John Baldacci. And then we had seven years all with age, and, and once in a while we get a majority in one of the houses in the legislature, and uh, we've made a lot of good progress. The unemployment rate in the state of Maine is 3.8%, one of the lowest in the entire nation. If you want a job, you're willing to work, and you can pass a drug test in many occupations, uh, you, can, you can get a job. 3.8% is pretty close to zero, uh, you know, it's about as low as it goes. Once in a while, we get down to three percent, but three percent of the people are oftentimes between jobs. You know, they'll lose a job for one reason or another, and they'll be unemployed for a little while and find another job. That's the way the world works. Some companies are not able to to make it, and they have a half a cut back. And I worked in the mill in Lincoln back in. I think it was 88. They had a they had a cutback. Paper industry was always cyclic. They they'd all be running seven days a week, three shifts, booming, selling paper just as fast as they could sell it. And then all of a sudden, there'd be an upset in the in the economy, and these advertisers that were advertising in magazines cut back and magazines didn't need as many pages and the magazine uh, industry reduced the amount of paper they were buying and same with book publishing people would buy these pocket books and then they would uh, they would uh, you know cut back and all of a sudden there's too much paper production and the inefficient mills would cut back on their production and shut down on a machine or two machines. Sometimes they shut the whole mill down for a few weeks. And then the, the economy would adjust and rec- begin to recover and the paper industry would be booming again. And the whole, it's not just locally in one state. It's North America. And the ripple effect even went into into Europe. I went into the mill at uh, Nolanakit they were putting labels on rolls of paper, and they were printed in Korean. And Chinese lettering is has 
a certain appearance to it. Japanese lettering is different, and it has a certain appearance to it. And Korean lettering is different. They're different alphabets, just like in in Europe. I mean, you've got Greece on one side of the Dardanelles, then you've got Turkey on the other side, and then you've got Saudi Arabia. Arabic lettering is very different than than cursive or English lettering. It's the same all over the world. All these societies develop their their writing separately from each other. They'll put in Korean labels on paper in in shipping them out of Millinocket. And I was inquiring, I said, why are they doing that? Are they shipping this this paper to Asia? No, 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 this is going to U.S. customers. Well, why put Korean labels on it? Said, well, they want it to look like the mill that 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 uh, Bullwater just bought in Korea. Bullwater bought a paper mill in Korea. It was beautiful, brand new mill, three years old. And financially, they were having an economic upset in Korea at that moment. They decided that much of the heavy industry in Korea is backed by the by the government. And they, at that point, they were starting to to develop the Hyundai Motor Company and various other more profitable uh, products for export. And they decided they're going to make less paper because they didn't have forests in Korea. They having to import their raw materials, so they decided they're going to they would sell the mill. Bullwater bought the mill in Korea. Beautiful, brand new paper mill. I mean, it's just neat and clean and efficient. Everything stainless. It looked like a dairy in there. And they bought the mill. And to, be, to get the American customers accustomed to the paper, they were putting Korean labels on the paper that was made in Millinocket, Maine. So it would look like the paper that's going to come out of Korea. They knew that they were going to pull the plug on Millinocket because when they lost the opportunity to build the Big A Dam, that was it. When that decision was made one week, the following Monday, Great Northern shut down their Woodlands Department. They had a great big Woodlands Department. They had these great big barns as you go out of Millinocket headed up the Golden Road. On the right-hand side, there's great big white barns there. Those were there years ago for for the teams of horses and oxen that they used to use in the woods. And their forestry department was an excellent forestry department. They had really good foresters and good management. And uh, the combination of factors came through. One was political. One was the spruce budworm, and one was lurk, and Maine Forest Service. It became inefficient, and they weren't going to be able to cut the wood and use it in a thermomechanical pulping plant because they would have had to build another dam. TMP is a very energy-intensive way to produce pulp, but thermomechanical pulp is... More is stronger than groundwood, and 
the Millinocket Mill had a pulp mill that ran on sulfite, and then the, the Canadians discovered that you could make thermal mechanical pulp, and you didn't need to have the plant to, to boil the wood chips and make sulfite, which they were also pumping through a pipe down the uh, down the East Millinocket. And the Canadians also discovered that you could make groundwood newsprint with no craft in it. And you could make coated paper with no craft in it. They built a mill down east on the north side of the St. Lawrence River, east of Bay Como. There's a paper mill down there, east of Bay Como. Look it up on the map. And they built a new mill with one machine. And they said they're going to they're going to make newsprint with no craft in it. And everybody's you can't do that. You can't do it. You just can't do it. So the solution when they had a runnability problem on the paper machine was simply to put in more craft rather than fix the problem on the paper machine. Well, craft is very expensive. This bleached very strong fiber. Craft in German means strong. So the, the paper makers all grew up knowing that if you add craft, the machine will run better. You won't have as many breaks. The company was always trying to cut back on craft, and then they started having breaks. This is, breaks are caused by a weakness of the sheet while it's being made, and you've got to find a way to adjust the machine to compensate for that. So the Canadians built this new paper mill, and they started it up on groundwood with no craft. And everybody said it was impossible. And the the newsprint, the newspapers were printing it. They loved it. And it was very uniform from roll to roll and from day to day. There was very little variability. And they just loved it. So it can be done. <clears throat> Excuse me. So... In Millinocket, they they shut down the forestry department because they knew that long-term they weren't going to be there. The mill could not run and make money. And no board of directors is going to let you run a mill that isn't profitable. And why invest all this money in this huge infrastructure if you can't make money? I was a superintendent of a finishing department in the paper industry. Started out in the paper industry not knowing anything about paper, as everybody does. And you learn. You apply your the knowledge that you have and uh, together with what the mill already knows and you can you can really optimize things. And uh And uh, you find out that that you can optimize things and and make the place more efficient simply by limiting waste of product and delays. And it's people don't think tend to think outside the box. You've got to look at ways to get this done. And it's all possible. We've got Yankee ingenuity working for us. And You can learn a heck of a lot from the guys on the floor in the paper mill. They know how to do it. Then 
looking at this, you can say, well, if we did this, we could save some time. Oh, geez, okay. And all of a sudden, the thing starts running a little faster, a little more efficiently, and you have less downtime in between grade changes and things like that. And you look for the opportunities, and Yankee ingenuity will prevail. The military loves to get what they call country kids. Country kids know how to optimize stuff. You've got a limited amount of time to get the hay in. You've got a limited amount of time to do lots of things on the farm and fix stuff, make it work, do more with less. And uh, and that's it. You know, it's... it's uh, Yankee ingenuity is what got us through World War One, World War Two. had an uncle who thought that we should not even be in World War Two because he, he was, you know, very much opposed to going and fighting a war in Europe. What have we got to gain? What's in it for us, you know? And, uh, and then came Pearl Harbor. And then Hitler made the mistake of declaring, excuse me, Hitler made the mistake of declaring war on us. We didn't declare war on Hitler at first. But when he declared war on us, and he said he was going to start running submarines up and down the East Coast, that's it. We're going to get rid of this guy. Because we were shipping a lot of freight to England to try to keep them alive. You look back at history, and we've got We've got uh, a lot of a lot of gumption. You know, the president of the United States is in Vietnam today, and they had a group picture of all of the all of the head chiefs of state attending this Asia Pacific uh, Economic Conference. So of course, we border on the Pacific. Going down the Pacific coast, you've got Canada, you've got the U.S., you've got Mexico, and you've got Guatemala and El Salvador and Panama. And and then uh, I believe it's Colombia and then Ecuador and Peru. After Peru comes Chile all the way down to the rim of the Pacific, on the east rim of the Pacific. And I've been in all those places with the exception of, of uh, Peru. Never been in Peru, never been in El Salvador, but I sure was in Panama. And in uh, Chile. But the Asia-Pacific Economic Summit, whatever they call it, I don't know the exact term, but they're all together in Vietnam, which also borders on the Pacific. Been there, too. I don't know if Colombia, excuse me, if uh, Cambodia is there, but they're pretty close. The, uh, the Cambodian border is in the Gulf of Thailand. I'm not sure they consider that to be Pacific, but they might. They're close. They're on the border. And they, uh, they're going to talk about economics. We had a trans-Pacific partnership 
that Barack Hussein Obama thought would be a good thing, and he he was going to have the United States equal to all these other little countries and islands in the Pacific. And these little countries and islands were going to vote as to what they wanted us to do. And we were going to be in compliance with their wishes. And Barack Hussein Obama thought this was a good thing. Well, guess what? Not a good thing. So we bailed. We dropped out of this Trans-Pacific Partnership. And we're not part of it. We'll cooperate with our trading partners, and we'll, you know, we'll see if this is a good idea. If this will benefit us, we'll work with these folks. But if it's not good for us, we won't agree to their their wishes. And he went and stood there in in the Forbidden Palace in Beijing, China. And Donald Trump stood there in what they call the Forbidden Palace. So they, in the old days, it was forbidden for any commoner to even set foot on the property. They could see it from afar, but that's that's where all the big decisions were made in China. And they had a, a system over there where the provinces in China were led by warlords. They fought among themselves, and they'd get a coalition together, and they would appoint a premier man. There were no elections. didn't work that way. It's like medieval Europe. You know, they didn't have elections there either. The king that could control the most princes and knights uh, was in charge. And usually his heirs succeeded him. And it was like that in China. They had dynasties. It went for hundreds of years. most famous one I know of is the Ming Dynasty. And China was a vigorous for Asia, a relatively prosperous nation. And they had a, the upper crust, the leaders, the uh, the warlords. And Japan had a very similar system. They had warlords, and they had uh, their, their special forces were called ninjas. And there was a movie about the last ninja when modern technology was taken over, firearms were coming into Japan. You need to understand how other nations work. You need to have diplomacy. And you need to be able to to work with these people and trade with them. In the United States, there are no tin mines. There's no tin in the USA. And we have to buy our tin from companies and nations that produce tin efficiently. And they have needs that we can trade. We can barter for for this trade. Okay, we'd like to buy 1,000 or 10,000 tons of tin. And for this tin, we will swap you a quantity of wheat and oats, various other soybeans, various other agricultural products, and we barter with them. We keep track of this barter with the currency that's in use. The standard currency in the world at the moment is 
the U.S. dollar. Most commodities, like the price of oil, are priced in U.S. dollars. Now, you've got a country like uh, Chile, for example, produces no oil. On the west coast of South America, there's no oil. Ecuador, Peru, and uh, Chile don't produce any oil. And they need oil, so they trade something else. And they they do this transfer in U.S. dollars. And the, the value of the currency in Chile, for example, Chile, the currency in Chile is called escudos. One escudo is worth so many escudos to the dollar. Two helicopters in the Antarctic. And I went down there and flew scientists around and diplomats and and uh, took a lot of pictures and learned a little bit, did some mapping work, and uh, came back to, up into Chile. And it was, uh, you know, the, the spring was coming in the Antarctic. The fall, excuse me, the fall was coming in the Antarctic. Spring is coming up here. And it was February when we get back up to Chile, pulled into Valparaiso and took on fuel for the ship and, and uh, took on fresh vegetables and food from the Chilean market and washed off the helicopter, took it, flew it up to a Chilean air base and had a big freshwater wash to wash the salt off because salt is bad for helicopters. No hanger on that icebreaker. <laughs> and it's not a very big ship. And the wind would blow and the salt would get on the helicopter. And we'd use uh, precious fresh water that we made on the ship to wash the helicopter. So up there and I walked into a florist shop. And they had teleflora or flowers by wire. So I bought a bought a dozen roses. I went in there with a with an American twenty dollar bill and I bought a dozen roses. Got some change. In escudos. This guy was so happy to see that American twenty dollar bill. He just because they had big inflation in Chile at the time. And that American twenty dollar bill is going to be worth twenty dollars the following week. It's going to be worth twenty dollars a year later and it's you know at the time it was sound as a dollar, as the old timers used to say. And the Chilean escudo value was falling in relation to the dollar. So everything that, if you wanted to go in and buy a toaster, you buy it now because next week the toaster is going to be more expensive. No toasters were manufactured in Chile. And I quickly, this guy explained it to me. Not, well, somebody else explained it to me because this guy didn't speak English, but I went through his catalog and I pointed at a vase of, of a dozen long stem red roses, which I sent up to my girlfriend at the University of New Hampshire. My wife and I were not engaged yet. We'd just gone together for a while in the fall, previous fall. I went off to the Antarctic and disappeared. So I sent a dozen roses up in the hopes that that uh, she hadn't found somebody else while I was gone, and she hadn't, and the roses arrived. The florist truck pulled up in front of the girl's dorm, 
Scott Hall, University of New Hampshire, and came in with a white Grecian vase with handles on both sides and 36 long stem red roses in the vase. Well, nothing like this had ever happened at the girls' dorm before, <laughs> at least not in recent memory, maybe back in the 30s or something, but it, uh, they, uh, they caused somewhat of a sensation in the girls' dorm. And then we came back up, we went through the Panama Canal, stopped briefly at, in, uh, in San Juan, Puerto Rico, for a day or two with the ship, and then up the East Coast, we went back up to Boston. The home port of the East Wind, the icebreaker, was in Boston. So we sailed in there and, uh, and got off, and my parents brought me my vehicle, which was a Austin Healey sports car. And uh, straight six, classic sports car. They're worth a whole lot of money now, but I, I sold that a long time ago. So I put, I had my flight jacket, a black flight jacket with the patches, you know, and the hat and the sunglasses. Looked just like Ted Cruz back then. And my girlfriend, later my wife, a very good-looking gal. Well, I pulled up there with the sports car at the dorm, and all the girls came running to the windows, and, and Pat came out, and uh, we climbed in the sports car and rode off. And the girls up in the dorm were all cheering <laughs> because this is the guy that sent the 36 long stem red roses, which I did not know. I didn't know that it happened. I just, I, I knew I. Although I hoped that the guy didn't just pocket my $20 bill and and we'd sail back up to the Panama Canal and I would never know the difference. So I kind of hoped that it came and then I, I had the top down and it was uh, it was a warm day and I had the top down on the, on the Austin Healey. All the girls were up in the windows cheering, this is the guy that sent the 36 long stem red roses. So that was a good thing. Ended up getting engaged, getting married, being married 52 years. Most of them were good years. So, you get these moments in your life that teach you lessons. One lesson is economics. I got out of the Navy, went back to school and studied economics and business management because there was no market for mechanical engineers in 1971. Just the economy was winding down, and Vietnam was winding down, and there, was, there weren't any opportunities for mechanical engineers. So I, uh, I took a management and economics course. The professor I had for economics was uh, Professor Woolley. And he was a smart guy. I guess he was probably 60, 65 years old at the time. And he was dying. He had pancreatic cancer. And he was going to die. And he knew he was going to die. And he wanted to teach as long as he possibly could. And and the school said, well, you know, you're welcome. You can stay as long as you can retire and enjoy your life. He says, I do enjoy life. This is what I enjoy most is teaching economics. And... I carry a, a bronze medallion 
uh, every day in my pocket. And it's Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 12, and printed on it. And it is, it's about uh, being responsible and taking care of yourself and keeping your nation honest. It's, a, it's good, good rules to live by. But I take that out because it's bronze in color. It looks like a gold coin. And I take that and I spin it on the countertop because we got talking about economics this morning. And the, the people of the state of Maine, uh, some of the people, are really gullible. And there's a, there's a progressive group in Maine called the Maine People's Alliance. The Maine People's Alliance is a bunch of communists. And that's, that's true. I mean, the people that lead it are a bunch of communists. The kind of difference between a socialist and a communist is a communist is in a hurry. Socialists just want socialism. Communists want big-time socialism with no human rights and no, you know, no, no freedom. So that's what they do. And they've seen what they do. Personally, up front, personal. And it's not that long after breakfast, so I'm going to talk about what the communists do. Suffice it to say that they killed more people than anybody else in the last century. So, this professor taught us the how, where money comes from. Told us about the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve creates money. Take a bill out of your pocket. You read the top across the top. It says Federal Reserve Note. Well, a note is a debt instrument. It means that the holder of the debt instrument owes something to the Federal Reserve. Well, the, the dollars in your pocket are debt instruments that we owe because they they gave us this this uh, this dollar bill or the hundred dollar bill, whatever. If you go to the bank and make arrangements, you can get a $1,000 bill. If you want to give it to a, a college graduate, for example. And most people have never seen a $1,000 bill. It used to be that most people have never seen a $100 bill. You know, back when I was a kid, if somebody had a $20 bill, he was rich. You could do a lot with a $20 bill. But the value of that paper currency has been declining since 1917. So, in 1917, you could take a $20 gold piece and you could buy a cow. Not the prize bull at the county fair, but a cow. An older cow that's not producing as much milk and she might, know, might only have one calf or two left in her lifetime. And, and the farmer would sell that cow for a meat animal. And you could buy the cow with a $20 gold piece in 1917. Today, you can buy a cow with that same $20 gold piece. So what's the difference? The difference is that you walk down the meat counter at Hannaford's or Shaw's or the IGA, and a $20 bill will buy you four pounds of good hamburg, top of the round, 90% lean, good hamburg. $20 bill, four pounds. And they have sales. And they got this 70, 75% lean, which is 20% or 25% fat. 
and you fry the hamburger and it shrinks down to almost half its size and the rest of it's floating around in the pan. You might as well just take it and deep fry it. But they sell it and people buy it. It's good food, but it's a lot of fat. You could buy, when I was in flight training, you could buy a brand new Ford pickup for $1,995. It's a while ago, more than 50 years ago. But you buy a brand new Ford pickup for $1,995. And then, then uh, you know, half a century, a quarter of a century later, you, you couldn't buy it for 1900 It was 19000 You could buy a brand new Ford pickup for $19,000. And a quarter of a century later, now, you go in there, you pay $40,000 for a brand new Ford pickup. I'm not talking about top of the line now. I'm talking just a, a good pickup. Four-wheel drive. Most pickups sold in the state of Maine are four-wheel drive. They all, they all should be. But uh, the value, it's not that the trucks, I mean, the trucks are better, given that. The, the 1962 Ford pickup for $1,995 had a radio in it. And that's about it. Plain truck. No air conditioning back then. Air conditioning was very expensive back then. So, the value of our currency is going down, and the value of our currency is going to continue to go down. When you look at the stock market, you say, wow, look at this. The stock market is going up. No, it isn't. Not in real terms. It just takes more more dollars to buy the same thing, like the cow. You know, today, a $20 gold piece will buy that cow. But what would it cost to buy the cow on the hoof in dollars? Honestly, don't know the answer to that question. I should ask somebody, because I know a guy that sells cows. <laughs> I don't know what they sell on the hoof. I'll find out. Probably, I'll try to find out by next week. The world is changing, and kids are not taught stuff in schools. I went to the Maine School Management Association conference in Augusta three weeks ago, and the keynote speaker started out Saturday, uh, excuse me, Thursday morning, started out, and he was a superintendent of schools in some school somewhere, Ohio, I think, and he was talking about education in general and how we how we should turn out a, a kid who was able to either go to college, you know, walk in the door and, and re- resume his education in the fall of the year that he graduates from high school, go to college. And they go on through and they'll graduate from college and they hope to be able to make a living. They should have well, go out of college and have a saleable skill. But beyond that, they should walk out of high school and be able to have a saleable skill. And people began to kind of fidget down there, you know. When they said that, you can look at these school board members, and most of the school board members know what's going on in education. And a lot of the school board members are not happy about it for various reasons. And most of the school board members go into the school board meeting, and you know how 
years ago, 25, 30, 40 years ago, they used to have these statues of dogs on the back shelf of your of your sedan going down the road. And sedans don't have back shelves anymore. <laughs> but they had a back shelf up there, and you could put stuff up there, and your packages and stuff when you went shopping. And they had these statues of a German shepherd, and you rock down the road, and the German shepherd's head would be bobbing up and down as the vehicle moved. And they'd move left and right and bob up and down. And that's what the school boards tend to do. The superintendent comes in, and he's got an agenda that he wants to get done and conducts the school board meeting. The first thing they do is, is there any public comment? No? Okay. So then... Then they read the minutes of the previous meeting, the minutes get approved, and, and they start down through the agenda for this meeting, and they want to talk about a few things. And the teachers, some of the teachers will give reports that they gave, they had a concert or they had a play or something. And then the guidance counselor will give a report, and then the special education director or teacher will give a report, and then the, then the, uh, the principal will give a report. Maybe the coach will give a report. And then, then they adjourn and people go home. Once in a while, they actually vote for something at the school board. Budget budget uh, season is coming up. You know, start working on next year's budget. Next month, they'll start looking at it, trying to predict what Augusta's going to do for as far as school aid goes. And then one of the teachers will come in, or the superintendent, or the principal, and they'll talk about the test results. How the test results compared with the previous year's test results. Of course, they keep changing the system. And the state has passed a law that by the year 2021, which is four years from now, that all high school graduates have to be proficient in a foreign language. Not just the ones going to college, all of them. They all have to be proficient in a foreign language. So down there at Augusta, when they announced this a couple of years ago, I raised my hand in one of these sessions. They have breakout sessions. And I raised my hand, and I said, it's not possible. Everybody kind of looked at me and said, what do you mean it's not possible? Kids can learn foreign languages. I said, not all of them. In order to, to, for all of our high school graduates to be proficient in a foreign language, we are going to have to import hundreds and hundreds of foreign language teachers from other states because Orono and Farmington are not graduating enough foreign language teachers to meet this need. Only 10 or 15% of high school graduates in the state of Maine are proficient in a foreign language today. So to educate the other 85 or 90%, you're going to have to have 20 times as many language teachers as we have today. Think about that. Where are you going to get the money to pay all these extra teachers that we don't have today? They have to be imported from some other state because most of them aren't coming out of our system. Well, they thought I was being negative. No, I'm just being truthful, like that economics professor that I had back years ago who told us where money comes from, where money is, and where money goes, because money can be destroyed. And the way you destroy money is through intent. You can destroy money 
You put $10,000 in the bank. You think, what can I buy with the $10,000 today? You leave it in the bank for a year. Banks are paying one quarter of 1% interest on demand deposit accounts. So at the end of, at 1% of 10,000 is $100. A quarter of that is $25. So you put $10,000 in the bank, at the end of the year, you'll have $10,025. What can you buy with that 10,000 next year? Well, you can't buy as much as you could this year. Think about that. Your money is losing value in the bank. You need a safe place to store your money. But you might just as well put it in a, in a safe deposit box as put it into their account. And the federal government says anytime you take out $7,500 and you say, well, I'll take out see $4,000 this month and I'll take out $3,500 next month. No, no, you keep, you keep track of that stuff. You take out $7,500 and the IRS is going to come and say, well, what are you doing with that? Where did you get it? And you know, we want to know all about it. Or if you want to put $10,000 in the bank, you sold your boat. The guy came and paid you $10,000 cash. You walk in the bank, you want to deposit the $10,000. Some Fed is going to come knocking on your door and say, where did you get this $10,000? They say, I sold my boat. To who? Then they want to know where he got the $10,000 cash. They don't like cash. I like cash. Economic professors like cash. Business people like cash. People like cash. Now they want to have a chip on a credit card. So that when you go in the store and you stick the chip in, like I did when I bought that electric grill down at the Big Boy's Toy Store, Harbor, Harbor Freight, bought that real slick electric grill. I like it. And it's going to be useful to me. I can go out there and put up snowmobile signs in the woods. Lots of things I can do when I don't have to run an electric cord I'll bring my generator there. Because what I've done in the past is put my generator in the back of my four-wheel and go out there and use the generator to power the Makita. Now it's going to be just take it out of the box and use the battery-powered drill. I think I'm going to like it. <laughs> it's all tied together. The, the fact that Maine voters voted two days ago, three days ago now, Tuesday, they voted to spend $400 million on providing medical insurance to young people. You got a young guy, 28 years old, not working. We're going to provide his medical insurance to him. So he's going to be able to go in the hospital and demand to have his doctor's office and demand to have his wart removed. And the state is going to pay for that. The people in the state of Maine are going to pay to have this guy's wall removed. So this guy, in order to have this medical insurance provided to him at no charge, 28 years old, not working, no kids, he's going to be able to get free medical insurance. 
from his point of view, it's free. Nothing is free. The doc is going to get paid. He needs to pay to keep the lights on at the office. And he, he's going to have to treat this guy because he walks in, he's got medical insurance. It's, uh, and we're going to pay for it. $400 million is going to have to come out of the state of Maine to do this. We can't print money like the feds do. We can't call up the Federal Reserve and say, hey, print us up an extra $400 million. Okay. They won't. It doesn't work that way. States have to work on a balanced budget. You can't pay out money that you don't have unless you vote for bonds. Now, the people voted for bonds on, on this week, on Tuesday. They voted for bonds so that we can go out and put in more bicycle paths and stuff. That's what the Department of Transportation feels. We don't have enough bicycle paths, so they're going to go out and they're going to make bicycle paths. And they're doing that all over the state, all kinds of recreational trails. They tore up the railroad track that went from Bangor to Woodland. The Woodland can't ship by their products by, by rail anymore. Woodland no longer makes paper. They just, it's a pulp mill. And they're shipping the pulp to Red China. The Woodland Mill is owned by Red China. The golden, great, wonderful, prosperous paper mill or something like that. I forget the exact name. But I told a couple of weeks ago about, about uh, how Domtar bought the mill from Georgia Pacific. And uh, they made the mill get rid of the woodlands. 425,000 acres of woodlands were sold by Georgia Pacific to five guys from Lyme, New Hampshire called Typhoon LLC. These guys didn't have five nickels to rub together, but they bought the mill. They bought 425,000 acres, 19 townships. And they held it for six weeks. Domtar bought the mill, then they flipped it. They sold it to the Hancock Trust. Hancock Trust is the retirement and investment arm of Yale University. Yale University is might as, be, might as well be called Progressive University because the most famous progressives in the country come out of Yale. Harvard is as far as progressives, and Harvard still has a couple of people down there that that are are conservatives, and, and they teach some, some conservative economics at Harvard. But but uh, Yale is 100% progressive. You don't get any conservatives coming out of Yale. So we got uh, well, Yale University. As soon as they got that 425,000 acres. Put it all into a conservation trust called Hancock uh, Hancock Trust. Now, Hancock Trust has nothing to do with that fine main family that runs Hancock Lumber. That's just a coincidence. Hancock Trust, as I say, is the is the retirement and investment arm of Yale University. That conservation needs means that nobody is ever going to build a camp 
or a home or a guide service to a lodge or a snowmobile lodge or a marina to fix boats or a snowmobile dealer right smack in the middle of that 19 townships where they could fix snowmobiles. Nobody will ever put in a, a subdivision where they're going to build homes or a hotel or a railroad. Nothing. It's a conservation easement. Pretty hard to overturn. You can fight it. Take it all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court will say, no, they own it. They can put a conservation easement on it. So we got we got some real problems because you got people get suckered by the Maine People's Alliance into wanting free medical insurance for this 28-year-old single guy, <clears throat> and he doesn't want to have to cut back on his tattoos and his beer and his cigarettes and his lottery tickets. He wants medical insurance for free, paid for by the citizens of the state of Maine. By geez, he got it. So we can keep buying all the beer and tattoos and cigarettes and lottery tickets that he wants. Because he doesn't have to pay for his medical insurance. And you and I, the little of us who work, are going to pay the $400 million. But I'll tell you what, we've got one more year, Paul LePage, and you're going to drag his feet. And you won't get Oh, one more thing, one final thought before we sign off on the Northern Maine Landman Show, there's petitions that got question two on the ballot were fraudulent. Every single person that signed that signed a fraudulent document because they never registered the petitions until after the signatures were collected. So every single signature that was collected is null and void, as is the referendum question that was passed on Tuesday. It's null and void. And eventually, it probably will go to the Supreme Court, and I think we're going to win. That said, the sky is clearing off. The snow is done. It's going to be melted off in an hour, but the ground was white for a little while. This has been the Northern Mainland Man Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, the Conscience of Maine. Citizen-produced radio broadcast today in Maine, worldwide on TalkShoe Radio. Look it up. Okay, it's cooling off. Things are going to be slippery for a little while. Be careful in the woods. Be safe. God bless. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.